Praise the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. It's good to see families here for the summer that we see from time to time. It's good to see new faces, and obviously it's very good to see those of you who regularly attend with us to worship our great God and Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What I'd like to ask you to do this morning is once again, take your Bibles and turn back to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3, we're looking at, you remember, the seven letters of our Lord Jesus Christ to the churches. We've, been, we've started this study because one of the things that we are particularly interested in at this time is to understand and see what word Jesus Christ has for his church today. Does Jesus Christ still speak to his church? Does Jesus Christ still have a word for his church? Does Jesus Christ still examine the church as we see here in the book of Revelation? And my conviction is that he most certainly does. He speaks to his church through the exposition of his word. He speaks to the reality of your situation and my situation by way of the Spirit of God intervening and the Spirit of God working within our hearts and our souls. And so what I hope to do this morning by the grace of God is to present to you again this passage of scripture, Revelation chapter 3 verses 1 through 6, and we will take a look at our Lord's word to this church here in Sardis. So let's take our Bibles once again, and we shall go to Revelation uh, chapter 3, and we'll read together verses 1 through 6. Please hear the word of God, Revelation chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And unto the angel of the church at Sardis write, These things saith he that hath the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest and art dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain, that are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. Remember therefore how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. If therefore thou shalt not watch, I will come on thee as a thief, and thou shalt not know what hour I will come upon thee. Thou hast a few names, even in Sardis, which have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white. For they are worthy. He that overcometh the same shall be clothed in white raiment. And I will not blot out his name out of the book of life. But I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. Well, let us pray. Our Father and our God, we come to you in the name of our dear Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of the church who has a word for each and every church that ever has existed. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that your word to us is a saving word. Your word to us is a healing word. And we ask and we pray, Heavenly Father, that we might heed the words of our Lord Jesus Christ this day, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, again, we've been looking at this passage of Scripture now for some time. Uh, we've been trying to consider the words of our Lord to each of these churches. And one of the things that we've seen as we've worked through the first four churches in this, in this book of Revelation is we've seen that Christ not only has a specific word to a specific church, but we've also seen that specific churches have specific characteristics. You may remember the first church that we looked at, the church at Ephesus. It was that church that was highly orthodox, and yet again it had lost its first love. That was a very, very uh, 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 challenging thing. That was a thing that our Lord Jesus Christ made sure that he put his finger on. As much good as, the ch as that church had, yet the one thing that was lacking was a severe lack. It was a lack of love. And that was something that our Lord Jesus Christ would not merely uh, bypass. The second thing that we saw by way of our Lord's mention uh, to the churches was to the church again at Smyrna. And the church at Smyrna, you might remember, that church was a church that from all outward appearances seemed to be very impoverished. From all outward appearances did not seem to have much going for it. But our Lord Jesus Christ said to that church that he knew its works and that church was actually rich. It may seem to be impoverished by way of the outward examination, but inwardly that church was very, very rich. You see, our Lord Jesus Christ is able to diagnose the churches. The next church we considered was the church at Pergamos. And you might remember that that church had, had very specific challenges to it. One of the things concerning that church is that that church lived at a place where emperor worship was really at its height. And many of the great challenges that this church was faced with was that it was faced with that 
kind of confrontational presentation of whether or not one would either be in submission to the lordship of Caesar or be in submission to the lordship of Christ. And there was that church at Pergamos making that very challenging decision. And there they were still being faithful. And yet there was still something again that they were lacking. They were giving place to false teachers and false doctrines. You remember those two, uh, those two groups, the, uh, those that were the followers of Balaam, those who were teaching the doctrine of Balaam, and those, again, who were teaching the doctrine of the Nicolaitans. And you might remember the things that we said specifically about those two groups. These two groups in that very challenging situ situation were teaching the church that it was okay to compromise with the larger society in order to avoid outward pressure or persecution. And these teachers were infiltrating the church. And they were saying that, listen, these things were not so important, that you have to give this exclusive worship to Jesus Christ. And our Lord Jesus Christ will not tolerate that, you remember. Our Lord Jesus Christ confronted the church with this. And we can see in our own day how it would be very easy for people to say, hey, look, why make it so hard on yourself? Just go along with what the culture is doing. Go along with what society is pressing, is pressing upon you in order to avoid all this hassle. Our Lord Jesus Christ says, no, you're getting it wrong. And so again, our Lord Jesus Christ diagnosing the churches, giving remedy to the church. Last week, we considered the church at Thyatira. And this was another church that was, pre that was presented with a contemporary challenge. And that contemporary challenge, you might remember, whereas Pergamos was kind of the center of Caesar worship of that day, Pergamos, I'm, I'm sorry, Thyatira, you might again remember, was, a, was something of a blue-collar town. Uh, much by way of the uh, ancient, ancient trade guilds uh, found uh, kind of a, a home there. The ancient trade guild would have been very similar to our, to our modern-day uh, union. And in one sense, if we can use some colloquialisms here, uh, Thyatira was a closed shop. In other words, if you weren't part of a trade guild, you couldn't work. And, and, and our Lord was saying to this church at Thyatira, listen, you're being seduced by this, one, by this woman who calls herself a prophetess. She's not a prophetess. I've not given her that title. She's taking that title to herself. And you're allowing, and again, this was specific to the pastor. This was a charge against the pastor. You're allowing that woman Jezebel to teach, to, to seduce my servants. And so again, the challenge there was, listen, instead of putting yourself in a situation where you're not going to be able to, 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 to earn a livelihood, just go along with the culture. When, 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 the, when the trade guilds have their, uh, have their times of uh, uh, their feast and their, and, their, and, and their gatherings, go along. And if they, if they offer some kind of burnt offering or some kind of an incense uh, uh, to their local deity, go along with it. Why, why, why cause hardship on yourself? And our Lord Jesus Christ says, no. It's a, it's a seduction of the church of Christ. And so our Lord, again, diagnosing the church, the Lord challenging the church, the Lord exhorting the church. And this is why at the end of every one of these letters, our Lord Jesus Christ says very solemnly, he that has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says of the churches. This is still what must be said today. Oh, do you have an ear to hear what the Spirit says to the church? And so again, each of these, each of these churches, again, much could be said, but they all have this little, this little tagline, as it were, whether it's orthodox but loveless uh, Ephesus, uh, whether it's, whether it's uh, seemingly poor but rich uh, Smyrna, uh, whether it's, uh, again, compromising Pergamos or compromising Thyatira, each of these things, each of these churches can be underst understood in a very short sweep. Well, what we want to do here today is we want to come and take a look at the church at Sardis. Now, when we come to the church at Sardis, one of the things that we find immediately is the church at Sardis was located in one of these impressive ancient cities. You might remember last week we said about Thyatira. Thyatira doesn't seem to have kind of the, the ancient fame uh, that some of these other churches did. Uh, uh, Sardis, again, was uh, very influential in the ancient world. It was the capital of the region of Lydia or the, or, or the, uh, uh, the area of Lydia. Lydia would be uh, basically the eastern one-fourth section of modern-day Turkey. Uh, Sardis was the capital of that, uh, of that region. It's kind of interesting. Uh, Sardis was uh, located in a, in a situation where it was on a, an elevated plat. It was on an elevated hill, about 1,500 feet above the surrounding area. And one of the distinctive features about the town or the city of Sardis is that it was located in such a way that 
because of the surrounding geography, it was almost impregnable. It was a very, very difficult city to approach to, even in normal traffic, and it was almost considered impossible to overcome by way of any kind of military endeavor because of the way it was situated. Very steep cliffs were on either were on almost every side except for the one side. And on that one side that didn't have the steep cliffs, there was just a narrow passageway going up. Very difficult city to, to go in and out of, almost impossible, at least they thought, uh, to be overtaken. Kind of interesting is that twice in uh, in, in uh, Sardis's illustrious history, it was uh, it was overtaken, and it was overtaken by surprise. And the way that it was overtaken is that there were, again, twice, uh, there, were, uh, uh, there was an incursion or inroads made into the city, not by the, the main road going up, but there were those who bravely scaled those cliffs and then with very little effort were able to overtake the city. And that's going to kind of impact what our Lord says to this church. And what's interesting about this church in Sardis is that this church in Sardis, in a very real way, seems to take on some of the characteristics of the surrounding culture. And the things that our Lord Jesus Christ warns against when he says, again, be watchful or I will come upon thee as a thief, the idea here now is that that unexpected overtaking, which is exactly what happened to the ancient city of Sardis on two separate occasions. And the other thing that we see about this uh, city and the church is that the church, as I said, kind of, a, uh, kind of acclimated itself to, to, to the society. One of the interesting things that we see is that there is no mention of outward persecution that the church was experienced there in Sardis, not like we saw again in, in Pergamos or Thyatira. None of this outward challenge. There was no inward uh, uh, corruption of doctrine that we're, that we're aware of. There was no warning against the Nicolaitans. There was no warning against the, uh, the followers of Balaam. No, no prophetess uh, preaching a false doctrine. None of these things. And the church just seemed to accommodate itself or acclimate itself to the larger culture. Therefore, there was no reason for it to be persecuted. There was no reason, again, for it to come under pressure. And our Lord then takes a look at this church. And as our Lord comes to this church, I want you to see how he comes to this church. He comes to this church making an evaluation. He comes to this church making a diagnosis. And I would even suggest to you that our Lord Jesus Christ comes to this church as a great physician. And he gives a diagnosis to this church. And he gives a remedy to this church. And he instructs this church on how to take that remedy. And he presents himself again as the great physician, enabling them to do the very thing that he prescribes. And so I want to present Christ to you in this passage of Scripture as the great physician. Now, this will just be an introduction because we have to deal with the text. But I want to suggest to you that in this passage of Scripture, our Lord Jesus Christ, with all of his ability to diagnose and all of his ability to put his finger on that which is most needful, he comes in such a way to this congregation that we can take a step back and say, is not our Lord Jesus Christ the great physician of his church? Is not our Lord Jesus Christ the great physician of souls? And you know Jesus Christ in his capacity, do you not? You know Jesus Christ is the great physician of souls. You know Jesus Christ is the one whom you've gone to in your time of difficulty. And there you were in a very, in a very dire situation. And you called upon the living God. And you called upon his son. And Jesus Christ was to you again the great physician. Amen. Oh, how we need Jesus Christ as the great physician, do we not? How our hearts are warmed by Jesus Christ as the great physician. And I'm setting this all before you because I want you to know and understand that the great physician has your best interest in mind. Has this church's best interest in mind. But ultimately has the glory of his father in mind. And everyone who loves the Lord Jesus Christ and everyone who is called by his name desires and longs for the name of Jesus Christ to be exalted. And so here is Jesus Christ in this passage of scripture as the great physician. I think of that passage of scripture, some of us quote it one to another, Psalm 103, verse 3, who forgiveth all thine iniquity and healeth all thy diseases. I want you to know that this great physician heals the most severe diseases, the disease of the soul, the soul that is afflicted by sin. It is Jesus Christ who comes with a remedy to that situation. And so in this passage of scripture, Jesus Christ is the great physician, the great healer of souls, and the great restorer of fallen churches. 
And so in this passage of scripture, I hope by the grace of God to set before you this truth, this proposition, that Jesus Christ is the great physician, knows the true state of every person and every congregation, and provides the remedy for their spiritual restoration and health. Hear that again, please. Jesus Christ is the great physician, knows the true state of every person and every congregation, and provides the remedy for their spiritual restoration and health. Well, what I want to do in this passage of Scripture then today, we're not going to get through all six verses. What I want to do in this passage of Scripture today is look at the first three verses. And I want to suggest to you the following outline. Number one, we're going to take the diagnosis. We're going to take a look at the diagnosis that the great physician gives. He diagnoses this church, this church, again, that has a name that's alive but is dead. There's a diagnosis there. We might say there's something about x-ray vision there. We might say that. I hate to use that. Forgive me for using that phrase, but I think you know what I mean. The ability to look inside of something. Secondly, we're going to see that our Lord Jesus Christ proposes the remedy for this church. Very clearly, our Lord Jesus Christ will say exactly what that church needs. Be watchful and strengthen. You see, again, strengthen the things that remain. Your situation is critical, but it's salvable. It's salvageable. Your, your situation is such that if you don't do these things, oh, the woe that will come upon you. But there's still embers there. There's still hope there. And our Lord Jesus Christ will provide the remedy. And then what our Lord Jesus Christ will do thirdly is he'll show how the remedy is to be engaged. He'll give instructions. He'll talk about the fact that the, the church itself must remember the things that it received and heard. Oh, one of these calls over and over again in the scripture, how oftentimes we are called to remember, how many times we're called to go back, how many times we're called to remember the things that were given to us in and through the preaching of the gospel. And then lastly, what our Lord Jesus Christ will do, and this is beautiful, what our Lord Jesus Christ will do is he'll come to this church, he will have introduced himself as the one who has the seven spirits, who has the seven spirits of God, kind of a phrase that has to be understood, what is meant by the seven spirits of God? Well, it's a reference ultimately to the, to the Holy Spirit. Jesus Christ has the Holy Spirit. And whenever he calls a church to repent from its fallen state, whenever he calls a sinner to repent from his or her sin, he reminds the sinner and he reminds that church that he is the one who's able to give a full outpouring of his spirit in order to enable us to do what he calls us to do. You need to hear that, and I need to hear that. Mm -hmm. Because we're going to look at the remedy here. In a sense, we're going to say, well, who can do all this? If I would have been able to do all that, maybe I wouldn't have been in this situation. Oh, but our Lord Jesus Christ comes to this church as the great physician of souls, not only with a remedy, not only with the direction of how to, to take that remedy, but also giving the ability by way of the work of the Spirit of God upon souls individually and upon the church collectively. Well, by God's grace, let's take a look then at this passage of Scripture. I've already spoken about the, the, uh, the city of Sardis, uh, some other things you might want are, are interesting to know. It's been interesting to, to kind of look at these ancient cities, you get, you know, you get some interesting information. Uh, Sardis was, uh, was uh, famous for a couple of things. Uh, uh, the, the, the man uh, who we know as Aesop and his fables was from Sardis. Another individual in history, some of us might know him, uh, you've heard the expression that so-and-so is as rich as Croesus. Well, Croesus as the king was there from Sardis as well. As I said before, the, the city was impregnable. So impregnable was the perception of the city that when in the two times that it was overtaken, the first time in particular, the surrounding cities couldn't believe that this city was overtaken. It was almost an impossibility. As a matter of fact, impregnable Sardis was something as a, of a catchphrase for that which was impossible. But yet this city fell because of its failing to be watchful, the very thing that our Lord Jesus Christ calls this church to. Well, what was the general character of this church? Again, we have to take a look at the diagnosis that our Lord Jesus Christ gives. Thou hast a name that thou livest, and yet thou art dead. This was the diagnosis. This was our Lord's evaluation of this church. Very blunt and, to, and very much to the point. And here was a church that had everything outwardly going for it. If you were to drive by that church, that would have been the church that had all the cars in it on a Sunday morning. One of those churches, you know. I'm happy when you see those things in a good gospel preaching churches. Hope and pray that that happens here for us. But it would have been that kind of a church. It would have been a church that was known in society. It would have been a church, again, that would have a great reputation. And there was much, again, by way of the outward busyness of the church that really acted as a cover for the for the inner spiritual uh, lack that it, that, that it truly had. 
I think of, a, of an illustration, again, keeping with the picture of a, of a physician. We've all heard people like this. Maybe some of you have been the recipients of this kind of information. You know, so-and-so went to the doctor, and the, the, the guy was the picture of health. And he went in, did his test, and had this done, had that done. And he got the, uh, he got the report back from the doctor, and he has six months to live. And everybody who knows that individual says, I can't believe that that, that that was the case. I can't believe that that happened. And these things happen by way of life. And that's the picture that we have here. Our Lord Jesus Christ is diagnosing this church. And in spite of what it might have externally, in spite of what it might look like, its inner spiritual core was in a very, very, very bad situation. And as I said before, the situation was critical. Now, I say critical and I combine the word salvageable because while our Lord Jesus Christ says that this church is dead, the deadness there, again, is not, is not final, we might say. It's, it's heading toward, again, we might, what we might say, a finality. But until this time, until, uh, until, but at that time, it was not, it was, that was not the case. There was still opportunity for this church. And that's why our Lord Jesus Christ was calling it to repent. As I said before... Uh, there was no, no, no internal error that we read of. There was no external uh, persecution. And it may, be, it may be the reason why we don't hear these things is because it may indeed be that this church had given itself over in accommodating the larger culture that these things, that the church was in a very real way indistinguishable from the world itself. It may be that false teaching now had become, again, just shot through, that it had become rampant in the church it may be that the sins of accommodation and compromise were something that just marked the congregation as a part of what they were doing. But it had all the outward works. We know these things. We know churches like this. We know, we know institutions like this. Much by way of outward good. If, uh, if, if, the, if the larger society needs something done, it will go to that particular church and it will go right along with it. And again, yet at the same time, that particular church may be in a very, very critical situation by way of its spiritual nature. And our Lord Jesus Christ, again, is making mention of this. And so our Lord says, again, he comes to this church and he says, the one that has the seven spirits of God. This, as I said before, this is a reference uh, almost unquestionably, uh, or actually unquestionably, to the, to the person of the Holy Spirit, our Lord Jesus Christ having the Spirit. The Spirit was given to him, again, without measure. Our Lord Jesus Christ pours out the Spirit upon his church. And this reference to, to the Spirit of God as the, as the seven spirits is seen in a couple of places in the Old Testament. We would see that in Zechariah chapter 4, verses, 10, uh, verses 2 through 10, and, and, and also in Isaiah chapter 11, verse 2. And so what we're seeing here is our Lord is coming to this church, reminding them that he has the seven spirits. But he has something else here when he comes to the church. He says he has the seven spirits, but he also has the seven stars. This is interesting because what we see here is the reference to the seven stars we've learned earlier are references to the ministers, what, what the scripture calls the angels, but the ministers of the churches. And this is significant because so much of what will be needed in the remedy that Christ gives to this church is all bound up in that ministry that God has ordained through the preaching and teaching of his word. Can I say it this way with as much humility as I can? The ministry of the gospel and gospel ministers are necessary to the well-being of a church. Do you remember this past Wednesday night when we got together for our prayer meeting? What did we pray for? We prayed again for the ministry of the word and the ministers of the word. Amen. Brother, we prayed for you. <laughs> we prayed for you this past Wednesday. We prayed for those who are in, involved in the ministry of the word. Why? Because, because, the, because ministers are, are necessary to the, to the well-being of the church. And Christ comes to this church reminding them. Now again, we say this with humility. We don't say this in an arrogant way. We understand that we would undermine everything that we stood for if we, if we proclaim these things in an arrogant or sinful fashion. But with humility, we say to the church of Christ, or Christ says through the church, there's a sense in which the call of God being upon us, we must be faithful to his word. We must stand against a hostile world and minister to a hurting church. Amen. And this is what Christ is, and this is why Christ says when he comes to the church at Sardis, again, I, I have the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. 
Well, this is the diagnosis that our Lord gives to the church. The situation was critical, but it was salvageable. The, the situation was such that it needed attention. I think of a number of passages of Scripture in, uh, in, in the Bible that kind of uh, lend uh, an illustration here. Uh, I think of a passage of Scripture in, uh, in, uh, in, in the Old Testament book of Hosea. And, and, and I've, I've read this a number of times. Uh, I, it's funny, whenever I see a new gray hair, either, you know, now I get my gray hairs on my arms. Whenever I see a gray hair on my arm, I think of this passage of Scripture. When I look in the mirror and I see all the gray hairs now, but in Hosea chapter 7, verses 8 through 9, God is taking issue with uh, Israel. And he says the following, following, he says, Ephraim hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim is a cake not turned. Listen to this. Strangers have devoured his strength, and he knoweth it not. Yea, gray hairs are there and are here and there upon him, yet he knoweth it not. What is, what is our Lord saying uh, through the prophet Hosea here? Israel's strength is being sapped away, and he's not even aware of it. And if you notice the cause of Israel's strength being sapped away, it's in that, it's in that eighth verse, verse. Ephraim, or Israel, hath mixed himself among the people. Ephraim, Israel, have accommodated himself to the world at large. And when the church does this, you see, the church loses. And again, the church enters into a weakened state. It may not think that way. May have everything on the outside that looks to be good. It may have everything by way if another church were to look at it and say, Boy, that church is really going great guns for God, isn't it? And yet again, what is the real spiritual diagnosis? In that case, for Ephraim, and in many cases in the church for Sardis, it was the fact that they had a name, that they were alive, and yet they were dead. I also think of the, the illustration of the fig tree that our Lord Jesus Christ gave there in Matthew chapter, one, Matthew chapter 21, verses 18 and 19. You remember the withered fig tree, a picture of Israel, Matthew chapter 21. Now in the morning, as he returned to the city, he hungered. And when he saw a fig tree in the way, he came to it and found nothing thereon, but leaves only, and, only, and he said unto it, Let no fruit grow on thee henceforward forever. And presently the fig tree withered away. Now those of you who know this account, you know the fact that at this time of the year, there should have been not so much full, fully developed fruit on that fig tree, but there should have been something there. And even in that undeveloped state, those figs, as I understand it, were edible. And there should have been figs there. It was blossoming, blossoming as though they were there. And it had the appearance of being fruitful, but in the reality, it had nothing. It had a name that it lived, but in reality, it was dead, you see. And I think most specifically, a passage of scripture that defines the church at Sardis is, is given to us by the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5. This was that classic church that had a form of godliness, but denied the power thereof. Oh, you see, outward religion can look very, very impressive, can it not? Is there anything more impressive, again, than the structures of religion that we see in society? But these things can be reduced to nothing. And so our Lord Jesus Christ diagnoses the church. Well, not only does he diagnose the church there in verse 1, he also gives the, the, the remedy for the church. Notice here in verse 2. This is specifically the, rem the remedy that our Lord gives. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain and are ready to die, for I have not found thy works perfect before God. I want you to see here that the remedy that our Lord Jesus Christ gives to this church is to be watchful. Some of your translations may say, awake, wake up. You're in a situation that's critical. You're in a situation that needs uh, immediate attention. You're in a situation that cannot go on as it's been going on. Please wake up, our Lord Jesus Christ is saying. He's commanding it. Wake up and strengthen the things that remain. It's kind of interesting, again, because this would remind us, again, of that situation in ancient Sardis. There was a time, again, when, when that king, Croesus was, uh, was, uh, was, uh, had, had challenged the, uh, the Persian king, Cyrus. Uh, there was a battle that they fought. There was really no outcome of that battle. Croesus retreated to the stronghold of Sardis, thinking that he would be safe there. And as the Persian army came, uh, uh, followed him, uh, one of the, uh, one, I don't know if it was a, an individual soldier or a general, but the, as the account goes, one soldier saw that there was, a, there, was a, there was a soldier inside Sardis whose helmet had fallen off and it had rolled down the cliff. But the soldier noticed that that other soldier was able to climb down, get his helmet, and go back up. And that gave the soldier, whoever the general, that gave the, the, the idea, those, those, those cliffs can be scaled. 
And so in that unprotected place of the city, watch you see, no watch there. It was said of that, it was said of that city that a, that a child could have stood as a sentry there. That's how easily it would be to see somebody approaching. And so our Lord's first remedy to this church is to watch, to be watchful, to wake up. And so brothers and sisters, I say to, those, I say to us, those of you who are visiting from other churches, I say, watch your church. Give attention to the spiritual realities. Are they, are they genuinely there? Is Christ preached truly? Is Christ preached faithfully? Is the word of God opened up? Are your consciences pressed upon by the authority of the word? Not because of the, uh, how can I say this? Not because of the, uh, uh, of, of, of the largeness of the pastor's personality, but because of the, because of the, of the authority of scripture. All oh, these things must be, you see. And our Lord Jesus Christ says to this church, be watchful. I think of that very well-known passage of Scripture in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8. Be on your guard, be alert, be watchful, for your adversary the devil goes about as a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. You have an enemy of your soul. And I, I've talked to people like this in, in, a, in a sense, and I'm using, I'm using kind of loose language here, allow me to use it, uh, Really, the only thing that Satan cares about is shaking you off of Christ. Now, don't get me wrong. Those who have truly come to saving faith in Christ are eternally secure. And there is that great grace of perseverance that Christ gives to his church. Oh, but Satan will test that, you see. Satan will, Satan will probe and Satan will attempt. And your faithfulness, the reality of your conversion is seen in your faithfulness to Christ, undergirded by the work of the Spirit within you. That's how, again, that's how we're going to come back to the end of this, uh, to the, the end of this sermon. Whatever Christ uh, presses upon the church, he enables the church to do by way of that sevenfold spirit. Amen. Oh, but Satan probes, you see. Satan goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Do you think in the presence of that kind of enemy, you can only be, just be watchful once? Oh, I did that. Watch, oh yeah, I, I did that. Oh, believe, oh, I did that. Oh, confess, oh, I did that. I did that. And, and, and your entire Christian life is bound up in the past. No present reality of the ongoing work of the Spirit of God. Oh, you see Christ, our Lord, again, what does he say? He's saying, be watchful. It's in the present tense. He's pressing upon us. He's pressing upon us again. A faithfulness that, that, that manifests itself right now. So again, watch Watch your souls. Watch the spiritual life of, the, uh, of your church. He goes on to say the second thing. He says, watch, and he says, strengthen the things which, re, uh, and strengthen the things which remain. Now again, here, as I said before, this is the remedy. And in one sense, our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, listen, take a look at your spiritual condition. Take a look at the condition of this church and consolidate those things that remain. Strengthen those things and make sure those things get the attention they need. Now, it's kind of interesting because we, we ask the question, when, when our Lord Jesus Christ says, strengthen those things that remain, what is he talking about? Well, I think that we can answer this in two ways. I think one way is, uh, the first way is more to the point. When he says, strengthen those things, I think what our Lord Jesus Christ is talking about are those works that he has so often commended the other churches for. If you go and you look at uh, what we see there in, uh, in Revelation chapter 2, where he says to the church at, the church at Ephesus, I know thy works, thy labor, thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil, and hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars, and hast borne, and hast patience for my name's sake, and has labored and not fainted. Those are the things that remain. Are any of those things in a church? Then stir those things up. Again, in Revelation chapter 2, verse 9, to the church there, there uh, there in Smyrna, I know thy tribulation and poverty. If you must be impoverished for the sake of Christ, hold on to those things. If you must be persecuted for the sake of Christ, don't leave off Christ. He goes on to say in verse 13, again, uh, to the church at, uh, at, at Pergamos, I know thy works where thou dwellest, where Satan seedest, and thou holdest fast my name, and thou hast not denied my faith. Do you have some? Is there something in you that, that, that by way of your nature causes you to say, I don't care how much, I don't care what my sin is, I don't care what the struggle is, I will not deny Jesus Christ. Amen. He says, hold on to that. Stir that up. Revelation 2, uh, uh, 19. I know thy works, thy charity, thy service, and thy faith. Remember, this is what we learned about Thyatira. Remember, there, Thyatira was, in one sense, the church that was most commended by Christ. I think there were six things Six commendable things in that church. 
And notice what they were. Thy works, thy charity, thy service, thy faith, thy patience. And he repeats the works again. And our Lord Jesus Christ is saying, if any of those things are there in a congregation, stir them up, strengthen them, consolidate them. The word strengthen here is very interesting because it's a word that we see it oftentimes in Scripture. We see, again, probably at least eight different times we have this idea of strengthening, being strengthened in the faith or being established in the faith. And let me just say something very quickly here. This establishing takes place or it comes to us in three different points of emphasis. Number one, there is an establishing that Christ himself does. 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 3, But the Lord is faithful who shall establish you, same idea, strengthen you and keep you from evil. It's a great work of Christ to establish the soul. Secondly, and this gets back to this idea, the ministers there, the stars that our Lord Jesus Christ has, it is, it, 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 it is the domain of the gospel ministry to strengthen the people of God. We see this in Acts chapter 18, verse 23. And he, and after he had spent some time there, he departed and went over to all the country of Galatia and Phrygia in order, strengthening all the disciples. It's a, it's, a, it's, it's a function of Christ to his church. It's a function of the minister to the church that Christ has called him to. But it's also a responsibility of the individual. And we see this in James chapter 5, 5 verse 8. Be ye patient. Establish your hearts. Same idea. Strengthen your hearts. Do you understand now why Peter says in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 12, Therefore I will not be negligent to put you always in remembrance of these things, though ye know them and be established in the present truth. You see, again, the soul strengthened in the things that it has. Amen. And so here's our Lord Jesus Christ giving this remedy. Again, this, this idea that, that we see presented to us here shows to us that when we take a look at either whether they be the things that remain in a church, the second thing that I would suggest to you is that it might also be referring to the individuals in the church who have not, in the words of our Lord here in Revelation 3 have not defiled themselves, have not defiled their, their garments. In other words, they have not accommodated themselves to the sinful society. They've, made, they've remained faithful to our Lord Jesus Christ. Take your Bibles with me, please, and go to uh, Malachi chapter 3. Uh, Malachi chapter 3, something of a well-known passage of Scripture. I want to read it in a little bit of context because I want you to see how valued, can I say it this way? I want you to see how valued you are in the eyes of God who stayed faithful to his cause even in the midst of spiritual and moral corruption. You're precious in the sight of God. So precious that, our, that, that God himself has a special term for his people who remain faithful. He calls them his jewels. Listen to the passage, Malachi chapter 3, verses 3, 13 through 18. Why am I going to this passage of Scripture? Because I want you to see that one of the ways in which we can apply these words of our Lord Jesus Christ, strengthen that which remains, is not only in regard to the things or actions, but it's also in regard to persons. And notice what our Lord says, and notice what we read here in Malachi. And again, I'm giving a larger context here for a reason. Malachi 3, verse 13. Your words have been styled against me, saith the Lord. Yet ye say, what have we spoken so much against thee? Verse 14, ye have said it is vain to serve God. And what profit is there that we have kept his ordinance and that we have walked mournfully before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the proud happy. Yea, they, they that work wickedness are set up. Yea, they that tempt God are even delivered. Does that sound contemporary in any way? Verse 16, then they that feared the Lord spoke often one to another. And the Lord hearkened, and he heard it. And a book of remembrance was written before him for them that feared the Lord and the thought upon his name. And this is how God feels about those who stay faithful in, in, in the midst of a, of a de decaying culture. And they shall be mine, saith the Lord of hosts, in that day when I make up my jewels. And I will spare them as a man spareth his son that serveth him. Then shall ye return and discern between the righteous and the wicked, between a church that looks like it's alive and a church that truly is alive. Amen. You see, this dead congregation did have some faithful saints. As I have said, the condition of the congregation was critical but salvageable. We have said before, this nation needs your faithfulness to God. This congregation needs your holy living and sanctified life. The remnant, is, the, the remnant very often comprises the only spiritual life that sometimes is found in a congregation. 
Can I say it bluntly and forthrightly? This church needs your holiness. This church needs the ongoing work of the Spirit of God sanctifying you. We need this. You may be the only ember in this church. May it not be. But it may be. And those of you who are visiting, can I call you to faithfulness? Can I call you to love Jesus Christ above all things? Can I call you to love His work? Can I call you to be wholly committed to this one who bled and died for you? He bled and died for you. You know that, right? This is the gospel. And the gospel comes to you by the hands or through the hands of a bleeding Savior. In your pit of sin, He reaches down with nail-pierced hands and He pulls you up from your sin. My friend, why would you turn your back on this? Don't you see and don't you understand that this is the Lord of glory who speaks these words to His church? And so, as I said, this, this church, again, needs your holiness. It needs the work of Christ. Amen. The next thing our Lord says, again, by way of the diagnosis, he says, again, you know, be watchful. He says, strengthen the things that remain. And did you notice what he says next? For I have not found my works perfect before God. This is an interesting phrase. The perfection here that is being spoken of is not a legalistic perfection, it's not me tithing mint and anise, but rather it is me wholly trusting in the finished work of Jesus Christ, allowing the Spirit of God to so influence my soul that everything by way of the orientation of my mind and heart and soul is all designed for the glory of God. Can I say it this way? Can I plead with you along these lines? Will your soul be wrapped up in the will of God? Will your will be wholly lost in His? You see, this is again that, that perfection of, that we might say it this way, that evangelical or that gospel perfection. It's not a perfection whereby you stand apart from somebody else and say, get away from me because I'm holier than you. None of these things. It realizes our own need. It realizes our own, our own uh, deficiency. But it looks to God for this perfection. It looks to Christ. But another way in which we can understand this idea that your works are not perfect before God, and I think in a very real way, this should be spoken to the ministers of Christ. In, in one sense, we could say it like this, that their, that their work, their, their Christianity, their nice-looking Christianity, and, and, and eternally as dead as can be, we've all seen, we've all seen the trees that, fall, that have fallen over, right? In the center of the tree, there's nothing there. That's why it fell over. That's what, that's what this church looked like. But this, this, this idea of not having your works perfect before God, can I say it this way? It's kind of like maybe what we would call half-hearted Christianity. Anybody here want a half-hearted Christianity? No. Amen. Not on a Sunday, not on a Wednesday morning you don't, right? What about during the week? What about when things get tough? What about when the challenges come? What about when your job is in, in danger? What about when your life is in danger? Thank God. Do you, see, do you see why at the end of this letter we're going to emphasize Jesus Christ as having the seven spirits of God? Because whatever he calls you to, he ministers to you through by way of his spirit. Yes. And so again, this half-hearted Christianity. Mm -hmm. Do we do the work of the ministry in a half-hearted way? Are there sufficient gifts to only give 30% effort? Are there sufficient resources to only give 40%? Can you just send it in, maybe? I think of passages of Scripture like what we read of David and what God said about David. Acts 13, verse 22. And when he had removed him, he raised him up. He raised up unto them David to be their king. Again, the history of Israel. To whom also he gave testimony and said, this is God speaking, I have found David, the son of Jesse, listen to this, a man after my own heart who shall fulfill all my will. No half-hearted David. No half-hearted king there. I think of another passage of scripture, kind of obscure, it's at the end of the book of Colossians. It's, it's if I can say it this way, it's, it's spoken to me at times. Colossians 4, 17, the apostle Paul closes out the book of Colossians and he says this, say to Archippus, Take heed to the ministry which thou hast received in the Lord, that thou fulfill it. No half-hearted ministry here, you see. No half-hearted serving of God, you see. 
And so again, we see from this passage of Scripture that a church can come short of what Christ calls it to do. It can fail to develop the spiritual life of those who attend. It can fail in its witness to the place where Christ has set it as a candlestick. It can fail in its worship of God by substituting human forms of religion and human standards of righteousness for what God has ordained in His Word. And so again, the remedy. And I know time is getting away from us here, so I'll just quickly get to the instructions, and there will just be a couple things that I want to say here. Although I do want to develop them, maybe we'll revisit this next week. Look there at verse 4, because this is how the remedy is to be applied. How do you apply this remedy? You apply it, number one, by remembering. Look at there in verse 3. Remember, therefore, how thou, hast re- how thou hast received and heard, and hold fast and repent. And we'll stop right there. This is our Lord's instructions on how to take this, this medicine, as it were. And the first thing he calls us to is to remember and it's interesting, I'll, I'll, I'll not speak again about the, uh, the, the, the important duty of, of, of Christian remembrance and how many times we see it here in the book of Revelation. But I will say this, it says, remember what you have received and heard. This is interesting because more than likely what our Lord is saying to this church is, remember the things that you have heard by the delivering over of the gospel to you. Remember what Paul says, for I delivered unto you that which I first received how that Jesus Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, not how he was raised again the third day according to the scriptures. That was delivered. Remember when we come to our Lord, when we come to the Lord's table, what do we what do we read from 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23? For that which I have received, for that which I have received of the Lord, I have given unto you. That which I have received. And so what the Apostle Paul is talking about here, when he says to this church, remember what thou hast received and what thou hast heard, he's talking about the proclamation of truth. It's a very beautiful thing that so oftentimes the restoration of the soul and the rebuilding of a church all forms itself around going back to those core truths, going back to the realities of the gospel. Oh, the simple gospel. You know, the simple gospel. You know, the gospel that you heard when... When somebody who you probably didn't think all that much of, I remember when I got saved, I listened to the guy present me to the gospel because he was so unlike me and so different. I just didn't want to be ignorant to the guy, so I listened to him. <laughs> yeah, God works that way, doesn't he? And so we thank God for that. But again, the point I want you to see here and the point I want you to emphasize is that it's this remembering, this going back to the preaching of the gospel, to the fundamentals of the faith. Yes, Jesus Christ died for sinners. What is it that keeps you... What is it from a human perspective? I know by way of, a, by way of a, uh, the spiritual perspective, what keeps you united to Christ? That's the ongoing work of the Spirit of God. What keeps you united to Christ from a human framework? Is it not the fact that you cannot shake the fact that you need a Savior? Amen. That when you look in the mirror in the morning, who do you see? You see the one that have left to themselves is deserving of God's judgment. Oh, thank God for the gospel, the simple gospel. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Yes, that's right. If my theology gets no better than that, I'll be a happy man. I pray that it does increase and it does grow. But if it it ever gets off of that center. And so again, this remembrance of what you've received and what you've heard. Again, very important because as I said before, this is probably something of a, a reference to the very nature of the gospel itself. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter uh, 2, verse 13. For this cause, we thank God also without ceasing, ceasing, because when you receive the word of God, you receive it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God. Again, remember what you have received. What did you receive? You received the saving message of the gospel. Then he goes on to say, hold fast. This is another repeated call. And I want you to think, and then he says, he says, lastly, he says, repent. Now, the repentance here is not the initial repentance whereby we come to saving faith. What is repentance? Repentance is that change of mind, issuing a change of heart. First of all, if we, can, if we could be a little more formal, repentance is an evangelical grace wrought upon the soul by the Spirit of God, whereby through a change of the mind, it issues in a change of life. We can go on and develop that. I think one of the simplest uh, definitions or, uh, or illustrations I heard of uh, repentance, and it was from just a local young man, a local guy, uh, was, uh, I happened to be listening to one of his sermons, and he said he, said he illustrated repentance one time to a group of uh, uh, individuals that were in the service. He says, how many of you have heard this command? Uh, halt, a uh, 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 company halt, uh, about face, forward march. <laughs> That's kind of like what repentance is. 
stop the way you're going, turn around, and go in the way that God commands you to go. Yes. We can get more technical, but I think in a very real way, that's, that's it. But let me say this. I think he is calling this church to remember what it heard by way of the gospel. And in preparation, I was thinking, what would it have been like to be among the first generation of believers who built this little church, this little sanctuary? What would it have been like to stand on this, in this pulpit on that first Lord's Day when this church was dedicated to the service of God? Do you think prayers were prayed that day that said, let us be, let us be socially aware and let us kind of do whatever society is asking us to do? Do you think that this church, rather from this pulpit, there were things like this, Heavenly Father, through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, and by the empowerment of your Spirit, may the gospel always pour forth in purity from this pulpit. May this, gospel, may, may this pulpit be a beacon to those around. Do you think that that's what was happening there? You see, there's, a, there's value in remembering your spiritual heritage. And we in this church, we have something of a spiritual heritage. But there's also a, a, a spiritual heritage that goes beyond this church. Marge, do you remember this envelope by any chance? This was an envelope that you gave me a couple years ago, and it was about the it was from the historical society or something related to the history of the area. And many of you know this, but I want you to I want you to hear this uh, by way of the uh, by way of what this church should remember. And again, this is all taken in the area here, uh, East Ham, uh, Thumper, what is it, Thumper Road, all this. Once upon a time beginning in 1828, and for some 30 years hereafter, thereafter, in a hallowed plot of 10 acres, which came to be known as Millennium Grove in Northeast Ham, thousands came each summer to worship. They came not only from all around the Cape, but from all over New England. And then, as one church historian put it, God's glory cloud of grace filled the place and made it a sanctuary of holy things. Amen. Those are the Bible thumpers, thumper time. Amen. Amen. You see, there's a heritage in this. There's a heritage in this in this community, isn't there? There's a heritage in this church. And when our Lord Jesus Christ says to the church at Sardis, "Remember, you go back to the gospel you heard. You go back to the gospel that was preached." And you may be saying to yourself, and you may be saying to one another, and you may be saying to me, and you may even say to our Lord Jesus Christ, "Lord Jesus, I hear what you're saying." but it's not in me. My spiritual energy is sapped. I've toyed with the world so long that when my heart is, is, is set in neutral, it inclines to sin into the world. How can I ever do what you're calling me to do? Did I tell you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who has the seven spirits? Did I tell you that every work of grace that he does and every duty he presses upon you, he does it by way of the means of the Spirit operating within you? And all would we pray that more and more of the Spirit of God would descend in his mighty power upon this place, that you and I would be moved to see happening in our lives things that we know are way beyond our capacity, Amen. but are all within the purview of the great divine Spirit of God. My brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the great physician. He is the healer of souls. He is the restorer of churches. Hear the great physician speak this day. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ and what he is to his church. Grant to us grace. Grant to us grace to take the remedy that our Savior offers to us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.